Tonight we are beginning a series through the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, this is a collection of about 15 psalms that begin with Psalm 120, which is our text for the evening. So would you pray with me? Father, we come to your word this evening expectant of your work in our lives. We come with open hands and with humble hearts, wanting to hear your voice and obey. We ask that you would use the reading and preaching of your word to increase in us joy, hope, Christ-likeness. We ask that you would do more than we expect, more than we can ask or imagine. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So if you are anything like me, you knew before tonight that there were Psalms of Ascent in the, uh, in the book of Psalms, but you're not exactly sure why they are of ascent. Uh, the word that our Bibles translate here as ascent um, can also mean steps or degrees So why exactly do each of these 15 psalms carry this heading at the beginning of each one? What exactly is being ascended? Um, The answer is we're not told explicitly what that means. So we need to do a little bit of detective work. Um, we, We might ask ourselves, does it mean we're supposed to sing them in ascending tone or tempo or pitch? Does it refer to a specific time or place when you would sing these songs? Scholars pretty much agree that these songs were sung while you ascended the mountain uh, to Jerusalem for worship. Your red hymn books in the pews uh, have a section in them that are Christmas songs. So you could turn there and find all the songs that we sing around Christmas time. Similarly, in the the Psalter, we have this mini hymn book of songs that uh, the Israelites would sing as they ascended the mountain uh, to Jerusalem to worship. If you look at Exodus chapter 23, starting in verse 14, God tells his people, three times a year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it, you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall also keep the Feast of Harvest, the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the Feast of Ingathering. At the end of the year... When you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. So in obedience to this, three times a year, crowds of faithful Israelites would trek from home to Jerusalem to celebrate these festivals to the Lord. These are the specific songs for that journey. Now, you probably are more familiar with these pilgrimages than you may think, you may remember. Uh, They're part of the life that's going on in the background as you read the Gospels. 
when Jesus is 12, his, he and his family go to Jerusalem for one of these feasts, and they travel in the midst of a large crowd into the city and out from the city, which is probably why it took them so long to miss him. You all remember that story. Um, and then at the end of his life, he and his disciples travel back to Jerusalem for Passover. Um, you may remember on the road, Jesus somberly telling his disciples in very plain language that he's about to be put to death and rise from the dead in three days. Um, in this context, they would be singing these psalms, these 15 psalms. It's a part of the regular rhythm of life in Israel. As you ascend to the city amongst a large crowd, you would all together lift your voices and sing. And they're road songs, they're big crowd songs, and they're meant to be sung as celebration and remembrance songs. Um, we know this in the book of Isaiah, chapter 30, verse 29. The prophet is, is telling of the relief that God will bring to Israel after his hard judgment. And he says this, You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept, and gladness of heart as, one, as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. That phrase there, go to the mountain, is actually the Hebrew verb ascent. It's, it's the same word in both, in both places. Isaiah here is comforting the people by saying that the relief that was to come for them was going to be just like the joyful singing on the way to Jerusalem for the feasts. Some scholars also think that these were the songs uh, that were sung as the scattered Israelites from around uh, Babylon returned from exile into Jerusalem. Uh, just as their fathers had sung them coming into the, to the, to Jerusalem for the yearly feasts, they were returning after long uh, exile, after long captivity, uh, singing these celebration songs on the way back home from Babylon. So these songs are written to encourage God's people as they return to the holy city for worship. And they're about the character and faithfulness of our Lord. They're sung as praise to God, who is deserving of our praise. So the first reason you sing these songs is because God is deserving of our praise. But it's also a reminder for the congregation, for the crowd, uh, of who God is and the character of this God who has delivered them and cared for them. Um, it's praise and encouragement. Um, it's easy to see that as you read most of the Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 121, for example, uh, is among everyone's favorite psalms. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. What an encouraging, joyful celebratory thing to dwell on, to meditate on. Um, 
There's rock-solid hope and encouragement in these words. And you can almost see a huge crowd traveling together and lifting that song up. Um, Psalm 120, on the other hand, which is our text for tonight, doesn't, doesn't seem to have the same kind of tone. Uh, if you haven't already, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 120. It's on page 516 in the Black Pew Bibles. And uh, follow along with me as I read this first Psalm of Ascent. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. So really only one of these verses carries this hopeful, celebratory tone, and the rest seems to be a lament. And I think it's a good example of how lament is actually used in praise. As we, as we read through the psalm, I think that we're meant to understand verse 1 sort of as a thesis statement, and the rest of the song is a reference back to the stated theme. In our cultural way of singing, this would be the chorus. Verse 1 would be the chorus, and we would sing it over and over and over again. We're singing this whole song to remind ourselves that we were in deep trouble and the Lord delivered us, okay? So what was the trouble? This song has three parts. Part one is verse one. Part two is verses two through four, and part three is verses five through seven. I'd like us to look at parts two and three first to reconstruct the story and the lament that the psalmist is proclaiming, and then we'll look back to close on the victorious chorus of verse 1. So we're going backwards. Section 3, that's again verses 5 through 7. The psalmist is far from home. He's far from Jerusalem. Verse 5 gives two locations where he was living, Meshach and Kedar, uh, and interestingly, they are not near each other. Uh, what that tells me and tells us here is that this is, this I is a we. Do you understand? So, so when he says, uh, I dwell here and I dwell there, he's talking about I as the, 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 the people of God. So the people of God are uh, in Kedar. They're away from home. They're away from uh, the presence of God in the temple. Um, they're scattered. And the people around the psalmist are hostile to him. Verses 6 and 7 tell us that the people around him hate peace and are for war. He's far away from home and from the security of having lots of his people around him. He's interested in the peace of his surroundings. 
Think about uh, Jeremiah verse, uh, or chapter 29, verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Uh, this psalmist is living out the truth of that uh, prescription that God has given to, to his people in exile. He, he is advocating for peace. He wants the good of this community, even this community of strangers. He wants their good. Um, and the, the people who are around him do not share his desire. They want war. They want destruction. They want what is unsafe. And it exasperates and is a burden to the psalmist. Section 2. Again, that's verses 2 through 4. The psalmist's anger burns hot at these liars. He imagines the kind of retribution from God that they deserve. Fiery arrows straight through the tongue. I wonder if you've ever had someone tell lies about you, try and destroy your reputation, assassinate your character, misrepresent your words and your motives. What an injustice. It's a very helpless feeling, an overwhelming feeling. It's very hurtful and... If you were in that circumstance, if any of you are are currently experiencing that sort of injustice, uh, you might, it might be easier for you to sympathize with the angry images that are used here in this psalm. I just wish that person would never be able to talk again for what they said about me. Verse 2 In verse 2, he called out to the Lord uh, for deliverance from this lying. He has no hope in himself for reconciliation or for peace with these hostile, deceitful people. He has no hope in appealing to their better nature or to uh, looking to them for mercy these people who are slandering him and wantonly pursuing violence. His only hope is in the Lord. So to summarize this lament in in sections 2 and 3, the psalmist hates that he is away from his home. Woe to me, he says. And he's burdened by the evil people around him. This psalm is a lament for home, where things are safe and people are honest and we can rest. And now we come to the refrain, to the thesis. Now we come to the reason that we are glad, the reason that we are celebrating, the reason that we are singing this song. Um, I want to examine three obvious things that are are in verse 1 in order to soak the most uh, nutrition out of the text. Notice these three things. First, the psalmist acknowledges that he was in distress. All these things that, he, that we've just described. His heart is burdened by the things in verses 2 through 7. The people who were around him were mistreating him, and he yearned 
for them to leave him alone or to get their deserved judgment. Second, the psalmist calls out to the Lord in prayer. This whole psalm should be understood as a strong reminder and a strong encouragement to call out to the Lord when you are in trials. Pay attention to the fact that he is calling out for deliverance from the badness in relationships, right? I think, I think sometimes uh, we think, we believers, think that there are some kind of problems that you aren't to bother God with. We'll pray about cancer, but not about office gossip or an unfair boss, not about hurtful words from a family member or a neighbor. I hope you see in this psalm that this is clearly what, not what God wants for you. He wants you to pray about your relationships. Go ahead and ask for help. Go ahead and ask for healing. Ask for protection. Third thing in verse 1. Our God, this God that we sing to, that we sing all these praises to, uh, is a God who actually and really answers prayers. He is alive and responsive to big prayers and small prayers. And we're supposed to have faith in God's deliverance, our faith in God's deliverance, strengthened by these words. So in summary, the refrain of this psalm, verse 1, In my distress, I called to the Lord. Among the deceivers and the people who hate peace, I called out to the Lord. I lifted up my desperate plea to God. Help me, deliver me, get me out of this mess. Please make something good from this life where all all I feel is fear and uncertainty. And he answered me. Here I am. Now, returning to worship the Lord with all my people, he has brought me through this great suffering, this great distress. With my people, I've returned with my people. I'm among my people. Hallelujah. So, I'd like to, from looking at these, these, uh, these verses, I want you to take three simple, uh, not, not complicated uh, words, statements of encouragement with you home tonight, um, and, and they're directly from this encouragement, this celebration song that we're singing that the Lord answered in our distress. First, do not underestimate the compassion of the Lord on desperate prayers. I, I don't know about you, but I have found the most fruit in my own personal prayer life when without any particular eloquence or well-thought-out words, I say, Lord, I'm desperate. Please do something to help. Something. I don't know what. I don't even have in my mind the wisdom to know how you could fix this problem, please act sovereignly and deliver me. Every time I pray a prayer like that, I see him act. I see him do something and deliver me. Um, And it strengthens my faith. It strengthens 
it to see him real and alive and at work. So uh, to illustrate this, I'm going to tell you a long story. When we went to Chattanooga last year, uh, I saw this with a particular student uh, while we were ministering to. Uh, so I, I have to explain to you a little bit about what we do in Chattanooga. Uh, during the evenings uh, of the week, we're down, our kids uh, will put on an evangelistic VBS for uh, an outreach in a local uh, underprivileged neighborhood in the city. Um, the, the emphasis is that the kids will do the work. The kids teach, the kids lead in song, the kids are engaging these other, these younger kids. And my job, which is, which is kind of difficult for someone with, in my line of work, is to let them do it, not get in and do it for them. Um, and our kids did such a great job, and I was so encouraged uh, such a great job preparing uh, to share the gospel with these neighborhood kids, and they were really, I was really moved by the excitement that they had about uh, hanging out with them and learning. Um, it was, it was uh, such an encouragement for me to watch. At the end of the week, if the neighborhood kids get permission from their parents, uh, we take them to Coolidge Park, which is this cool park right downtown by the river, uh, with a splash pad and hot dogs and snow cones. And, and our students uh, have been thinking through the week which of these kids that we've been ministering to are, are uh, able to hear more, a more, more pointed, more direct uh, gospel presentation. Who, who am I going to take aside and say, listen, I really want you to uh, claim these promises as your own and, and find hope and peace in the Lord? So, um, there's, there's kids of various ages, so the younger kids will just go and play and have snow cones and have a good time, and, and a few of the older kids, our kids take aside and share the gospel uh, in, a, in a real pointed and direct way. So, this is exciting. Um, last year, that Friday, we picked up all the kids who had permission, and we brought along one kid who had not really been there that week. Uh, he, he came over to the VBS for a, a little while on one of the days. It was a little too cool for it, a little too old for it, and wandered off before we finished that day. But he got permission to go to the park. Uh, he was maybe 13 or 14. So we pick up about 20 kids, and we're driving over to the park. Rebecca, playing the piano here, is in the car with me, and She's trying to talk to the kids about the day and trying to be a good, you know, host. And um, this boy is just belligerent and making fun of all the other kids, and he's rude, and the other little kids are upset by his behavior. And now I'm supposed to be facilitating, you know, I'm supposed to step back and not. But, you know, this seems to me a little above Rebecca's pay grade, so I start... You know, I'm doing my youth minister thing. Hey, kid, you know what? what uh, hey, my friendly, normal thing. And the response I get is, shut up. Nobody wants to hear from you. Uh, which you, you may not just know that 
that's not the kind of response I'm used to in youth ministry at URC, right? Um, <laughs> big kids do not say that to me. Uh, and Rebecca's looking at me like, did that just happen? <laughs> um, so this kid is from another culture, and he has a natural distrust for me as a white adult male, and maybe even a built-in animosity. Um, I, I don't just let it go. I say, you, you can't say that to me. I'm the adult. Quick change of subjects. Hey, who's going to get a snow cone? You know, we, you don't. Um, but this kid is relentless. <laughs> we finish the ride. He's making fun of my driving and antagonizing the other kids. And uh, so we drop the kids off, and I go to park the van, and I'm like, Lord, what do I do? I literally have two minutes. Park the van, walk over. What? I, I'm desperate here because I'm so excited for our students to be able to take aside these other students that they've planned to talk to and share the gospel with. And I've got one kid who wants to derail this whole situation, right? Um... So what do I do? Do I ask the Hope for the Inner City staff for help? Do I send this kid home? <laughs> I'm, I'm desperate. Uh, I want my kids to have a successful afternoon of ministry. It feels like it's going to get derailed by this one bad kid. So the, this is all the prayers in my heart of a, of a minute. Lord, please do something. I don't know what you will do. Please act. Uh, so he did. <laughs> I get to our group, and this kid hasn't let up, and so I just start leaning into him, talking, teasing, engaging, and I am also relentless. Uh, I decide I'm, I'm going to break the plan, and while my kids are engaging the kids they were planning on, uh, talk, sharing the gospel with, this kid was mine. <laughs> uh, he gets Dave all day. So he's got a cell phone, he's playing with it, and I notice a comic character, and I start calling him that name, and uh, he's looking at me like, oh, whatever, man, he's just... Finally, I challenge him to a game of, and his two closest friends there, to a game of two square. Now, uh, if you're not familiar with the game of two square, it is a playground, city sort of game that is a, a more intimate version Foursquare. <laughs> now, a physical challenge is not what this kid was expecting from me. Uh, in, his, in his mind, and, and with his mouth, he, this is pretty funny, right? Um, he's pretty sure he can take the old fat guy in a game of two square, and that it's going to be hilarious. Uh, little did he realize that I was the Donnelly Elementary fifth grade boys champion. <laughs> Two square. He doesn't know what he's up against. Now, the idea that he could humiliate me in a kid's game, a playground game, was pretty funny. The reality of being destroyed by the old fat guy proved to be far more funny. And we got to talking. Our students broke off into their groups, 
sitting in the field at the park, and I sat about 10 feet away with this kid, and we talked about his family and his fears about the future. And he shared with me about the expectation that people have of him to fail and how scared he is of that. And I talked with him about the sure hope of Jesus Christ found in the gospel and how what Jesus did for us transforms us because we can truly know how much we are loved in Christ's death. Talked to him about turning himself over to Christ so that his future will be secure. He says, yeah, you know, that's what my mom says too. He lets me pray with him and, it's, and for him and for his future. And then for the short time that we have left, all of a sudden this belligerent kid is more like one of my dig students than uh, anything else. He's helpful with littler kids. He's respectful and smiling, joking with me. So, a desperate prayer for help is exactly the kind of prayer that the Lord likes to answer. He gets the most glory from delivering you and me in those circumstances. So when you're in that moment of, that person is really, really mad at me and I don't know what to do, or this situation is out of control, or even this medical diagnosis is terrifying. According to this psalm, I'm, I'm presenting to you that God will answer in your distress. Call out to him. We can have confidence that he will answer. All right. Uh, my second, my second uh, word for you to take home, do some remembering of where you've been. You would do well to spend a little time dwelling on the times in your life when you lifted up a desperate prayer to God and he came through. This is what the Israelites are doing here on their way back into Jerusalem by singing this psalm. They're reminding themselves of the faithfulness of the Lord and singing his praises for it. So get together with your family and sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And remember together when you were desperate and God came through. Do this because it's right to praise the Lord for his goodness to us, but also do it because your mind will grow healthier and healthier as you remind it on whom you depend for your life and everything else. I don't know if you realize, but your mind, our mind, fallen man's mind, is in this constant effort to self-justify and prove ourselves sovereign. Whether your self-esteem is too high or too low, this is what your mind is doing. Uh, it's an illness, we'll call it an illness, called the noetic effects of the fall. The only thing that will help is a constant reminder that you are in fact totally dependent upon God. If you don't keep applying this balm to your brain by preaching to yourself the Lord's faithfulness, who he is and how much you're dependent upon him, your heart hardens calcifies. We might not realize that 
part of the reason that God has allowed you to go through whatever affliction you've gone through uh, is because of the P in tulip, perseverance. The Lord often acts sovereignly to keep us by allowing us to feel so much pain and uncertainty that we have to call on his name and remember who we belong to and what our only hope is. Jesus is the only hope for your soul, and the hope for your mind is that you remember that fact. I'll say that again. Jesus is the only hope for your soul, and the only hope for your mind is that you remember that fact over and over and over again until glory. Third and final uh, word to take home. In the midst of trial, remember your destination. Um, remember that this psalm is sung on a journey. All of your songs are also sung on a journey. Your journey also starts in a strange and scary land filled with deceit and threat, and it ends in your true and everlasting home where peace and justice will find their perfection in the presence of Jesus. We won't need a temple because we will be in his presence And we won't need the sun because he will be our light. All your fears, all your hurts, all the injustices done to you will dissolve. And all your sorrows will turn to joy. I want you to take that with you and remember it as you hear the rest of the sermons about the Psalms of Ascent that are to come in the the coming weeks. We too have been delivered from trials, from the trials and sufferings of this world, but we are not yet at our rest. We are still on the journey. But we can remember on that journey the faithfulness of the Lord in the past and the faithfulness of the Lord to come and our heavenly rest to come. We're strangers in a strange land on a lifelong pilgrimage to the heavenly Jerusalem, We are together in this journey as a church, and we depend on no one but the Lord as we go. We're looking forward to our heavenly rest. Just to close, I'm going to read the psalm one more time, and then we'll pray. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows, glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace, for I am for peace, But when I speak, they are for war. In verse 1 again, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. What a great, great hope we have. Let's pray.
Father, our hope is in you. We rest knowing that in our distress, in our hopelessness, in our sin, you heard our cry for mercy and delivered us. We thank you that in Christ we are new creations. The old has passed away and the new has come. Lord, we look forward to the day when our journey will be complete and we will rest in your presence. But now, on our journey home, we sing together of your faithfulness. And all God's people said, Amen.